ladies and gents, welcome to Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. I'm your host, Aid Thompson. Um, before I get started, do consider, if you're enjoying the podcast, do consider coming to the live show I'm putting on. That's on Thursday, the 28th of September. So it's not far away. Less than a month. Guys, that's going to be me, Otto English, Ashley Hayden, John Martin. It's going to be a fucking riot. It's going to be good fun. Booze, fun, games, stand up, a live podcast thing. It's going to be good. I'm psyched. Um, so you can grab tickets to that or indeed the other live show. You've got the 28th of September or you've got the 10th of November. September, November. You take your pick. Both in London. Uh, November is going to be me, Dane Baptiste, Marina Perkis, Danny fucking Price, Super Tansky. That's 10th of November. So if you want to get tickets to those, you can go to funk27.co.uk forward slash shows. And there will be a link to that in the description. Natch. Um, I should probably mention also like tickets to these shows that they always go out to Patreons first as to all of the episodes of the podcast. They're always out to Patreons two days ahead of of everyone else so if you are feeling the podcast and the punk politics stuff that i put out uh maybe check it out go on to patreon.com forward slash aid thompson with an i n on the end right that is it for the podcast admin let's get into this cheers happy friday mm. um let's get into it like it's been a week hasn't it it's been a fucking week, guys. There's been no, there's been no summer recess for the exhausted, sighing masses of Britain, as there as we, we spat out our morning gin yesterday at the unsightly visage of the Conservatives' first ever job share arrangement. I don't know if you caught wind of that yesterday by way of Grant Shapps. Presumably splitting the role of Secretary of Defence with one Michael Green and Sebastian Fox. So that's that's inspiring, isn't it? The first ever Tory job. I mean, between between the job share arrangement here and giving a taste of responsibility to the cognitively impaired over there with, you know, Suella and Leanderthal. I suppose it's all quite progressive in a way, isn't it? <laughs> well done, Tories. You're all hot. Um, but between that and now the crumbling infrastructure of our schools breaking down a week before they're due to reopen for the autumn term, we are firmly in disappointment territory, aren't we? We are in the realm of batshit political bellendry. But, uh, but fear not, dear listeners, because here to help me make sense of the census is actor, comedian and thespian appearing at the Park Theatre. As of 13th of September in Finsbury Park, in It's Coming Straight Towards Us, a tale of two actors stuck in a trailer on the side of an active volcano. Tonight, my guest, please welcome to the show, it's Rufus Fucking Hound. Woo! No, no, not yet. I did, I dabbled with the idea of it because there's, um, oh God, I'm never going to remember a fucking name now. Um, oh, Mooncat. Actually, there we go. I have. I've still got some memory left. Um, this this lady called Mooncat is sort of a bit polit- political, a bit Charlie Brooker. And a friend of mine was raving about her going, oh, you would love her. Like, she's, so, she's kind of similar to you, but a little bit this, a little bit that. I was like, OK, all right, I'll check her out. And I watched one of her Friday night shows. It sort of clashes with mine a bit. Uh, and I loved it. I, I really loved the format. Like, it was just her jamming, like, using a loop machine and some keyboards and stuff. And then she goes into the politics i was like maybe i may is there something i could do around this but i never really ventured into it what, why do you ask it was just when you say we're streaming yeah. almost everyone i know who does streaming is streaming on twitch interesting yeah but that said i have never worked out why you would stream on twitch because it's they make you jump through so many hurdles before you can monetize it right and then once you've monetized it it seems to largely be in being encouraging parasocial relationships 
in a way that just seems to be profoundly unhealthy. And all the people I know who've made any money at it during um, lockdown, yeah. well, basically, by the time lockdown ended, they were like, I need to get the fuck out there, man. There are loads of people who think I'm their best friend who, like, literally, the only way I can earn a living is keep going, yeah, no, great, how are you? How's the wife? Please don't contact me, please don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gather that it's, a, isn't it, like, more of a kind of gaming ecosystem yeah. and community and stuff and... Yeah, I, I, I sort of toyed with the idea of moving over there, but it was like I'm already sort of, you know, two years deep into doing this on YouTube. And most of the intel that I've got from people who do YouTube full time suggests that actually, you know, sure, there's some competitors out there and sure, there's ways of monetizing within those competitors. But YouTube is kind of where it's at, especially if you're doing anything vaguely political. It's like the algorithm's there, the audience is there. Um the monetization or, or at least the opportunity to maybe benefit pretty well from monetization is there as well so i'm just going to stick it out here i think i would yeah um rufus welcome so we've started streaming i should have said that we we've uh, we've locked on hey guys welcome to the live stream welcome to a thompson and other disappointments um what's up to the patreons quick doff of the cap to you guys joined tonight by rufus hound hello of celebrity juice uh, multiple theatre production, fame, um, Dancing on Ice. Uh, you, yeah, you'll know him. Well, actually, do you know what? I was about to say, you'll know him. You'll, like, you'll recognise his face. But one thing, like, so I, I told some friends of mine that you were you were on this week. I was dead excited, obviously. Uh, and they were like, oh, they were like, Rufus Hound. Where do I know that name? I was like, it's, it's this guy. And they were like, I know that guy. And then there's like a pause. And they were like, where do I know that guy from? Like... <laughs> It's like you have one of those faces that sort of like, like that. The, the exchange that I had with my mates reminded me of an interview that I read with Bob Hoskins once, where he was like, like they were asking him about fame, like how do you handle fame? You're very, very famous, etc. And he was like, yeah, but I've got one of those faces where people recognise me, and they give me the old like head back all right, you know? They go like, all yeah. right, like that, but they think that they recognise him from like outside the school gates. Or like they got talking to him in a calf, or say so like he's just got a friendly face, and I wondered like, do you get that a lot? You've got quite a friendly face, Rufus. Um, only when I'm talking to you, Aid. Mm. <laughs> Although you do remind me of the joke. Uh, do you remember the Geordie comedian Gavin Webster? No, but I can Google him. Oh, please do. Stick a picture up of of Gavin Webster. He had an amazing joke. He said, "Ah." Uh, 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 my name's Gavin Webster. You may recognise me. I've been on a few panel shows and that. But most people just seem to look at me like, aren't you the bloke who plays snooker with me brother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, similar uh, sort of vibe. You kind of go, oh, yeah, something. Um, no, I think it's basically this. I think there was a period of my uh, of, of being a comedian and, and doing lots of panel shows and whatnot. Yeah. And, and things like Celebrity Juice. But after doing them for a while and not finding them terribly fulfilling, I no. increasingly started telling people to naff off. And right. I'm not entirely sure what your rules are about swearing on this podcast. You can swear away, mate. Yeah, you're all good. Oh. Well, in that case, I increasingly tell people to fuck off. <laughs> um, basically, few things in television will make you less employable than telling the people who make it to fuck off. Right. I see. That's good to know. So, yeah. So having having sort of done that, uh, I <laughs> I then I then said to my agent, "Well, what do you think I should do now?" And she'd just taken on somebody who uh, had come from a theatrical agent more than TV and stuff. Can we just can I just pause that? Did you literally tell like producers and casting agent like fuck off, or like did you get in an argument, or or were you like, "Nah, it's not really my bag," and you know. No, more the former. Really? Interesting. Interesting. So on celebrity on celebrity juice, basically. Yeah. I mean, let's 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 peel this onion, Rufus. Mate, yeah. I I'm very happily I've told the story before. It's not really that big a deal, but Yeah. <laughs> um basically I was on that show for years mm. before it was a hit. I was on it when the, all of the writing about it was what is this diabolical piece of garbage? <laughs> <laughs> 
TV too is trying to inflict on people. It's not funny. It's not good. It's not clever. And why the hell Holly Willoughby and Fern Cotton would want to be on it is a mystery to everyone. Right. But the one episode of the first series it did all right happened to be an episode I was on. And in the second series, ITV2 said, well, why don't you try and get Rufus on it like every week? Because that, that dynamic might be a bit more useful, mm. A. And B, because I was mates with Fern, having worked with her on a couple of other things, including Top of the Pops, um, like, you know, it, it, it will it will be a nice vibe. You know, Fern's got a mate and he's a bit spider and whatever. So I did two series where basically everyone was still saying, what is this absolute piece of shit? But towards the end of series three, it actually just started tipping over. Now, a TV producer friend of mine said to me, basically, if you're ever trying to do something genuinely a bit edgy or new, you've got to impress 14-year-old boys. I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. That's what you've got to go after, right? If you can impress 14-year-old boys, you'll, you've just got to stick at it and you'll turn the tide. I was like, I don't know why you would say that. And he said, it's because of this. 14-year-old boys, when they latch on to something, they won't let go of it. They'll say it and say it and say it and say it and quote it and quote it and quote it and quote it. Right, right. More than any other demographic. Okay. So if it's children and children are saying it, then it's just like that's a kid's thing. But 14-year-old boys, it's just tipping over into the kids that are cool, like the skater kids or the alt kids or the, yeah, the new rappers. Yeah. I can see that. Like, 40, I always say that 14 is when I started. Like, this sounds really like I'm patting myself on the back, but like, 14 is when I think people start thinking like an adult. And it's like, right. right. You know, you're capable of understanding adult humor. It's when you first get into more grown up music. It's, yeah. Sorry, right. continue. Yeah. No, no, but that's exactly it, right? Mm. But then when you find something at 14 that you love, it, like, it matters and you're. Mm. You have a bit evangelical about it, right? Like, oh, there's this thing, and you know, it's great and it's cool, and it's not, it's not like, it's not like those people like. It's ours. We love it. It's yeah. you know, yeah. So you just need a bit of a while. But he said the other thing that happens is their parents to try and still be connected to them will then go, oh yeah, I'll watch that with you. Oh yeah. 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 He said, so the thing is, you got to hit teenage boys, but then be good enough that when the adults watch it. They also go, actually, that is quite funny. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't, I, I'm not really advocating for this point of view. I'm just saying that is the way that a TV producer described it to me. And I think largely could describe where celebrity juice, because to begin with, it had a bigger budget and all sorts of things. And when it didn't get the viewer numbers, they yeah. scaled everything right back. <laughs> um, but the point was that I did that as a favor to a mate that I was working with at the production company and we were working on something else. And she said, look, they've actually asked you to come on every week. Will you, would you do that? And I was like, yeah, no reason why not. It's not hard work. I literally turn up, start drinking at six o'clock. At seven o'clock, you sit <laughs> me in a chair. I make about 10 sort of stupid jokes about people who are famous. And mm. then I go home again, like, it's lovely. However, after I'd done it for a couple of series, when I was trying to get on other things, I then wasn't getting on them because right. the note coming back was, well, no, but you're the bloke on Celebrity Juice. You know, like, that's what you do, really. Right. So I went to the producer and said, listen, I think, I, you know, I, I might just need to not be here, really, because I, when I watch it back, I'm literally only on it for about 20 seconds. So I'm not getting any work, you know, because like, if you watch an episode of Celebrity Juice I'm on, yeah. it's Keith Lemon being Keith Lemon, Talking about Holly's tits for about three minutes, Fern's nostrils for about five minutes, then introducing the other guests. When it gets to me, it's literally like, all right, Rupert, yeah, all right. So moving on to round one. Right, so, right. And so then the, so, the jokes aren't, so the was, jokes aren't going my way. Anyway, it, it all sounds like I haven't really let it go. Maybe that's the case. All I'm really trying to describe is that I wasn't really that bothered about it until I realized that. I was actually not getting on things that were going to be more fun yeah. because of being on that. So I said to the producers, look, I've either actually got to be on it on it so yeah. that I can sell what I actually am, you know, and get and, and actually use some of the, um, you know, the heat that this show's got. Yeah. 
or I've got to leave and actually do something on my own accord. But I can't just be on it for like 10 seconds every week, just firing in on the buzzer round, and that's as much as I'm on it. Because it just looks like you're cutting around me because I'm shit. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, is there a sort of parallel there with the, um, like the well... Uh, documented journey that Simon Amstel went on, where he was like, he was on Pop World, right? He's kind yeah. of there taking the piss out of pop stars. It's fun, like, again, that sort of 14 year old boy market, everyone's like chuckling, like, I can't believe he said that to S Club or whatever. But yeah. it, like, internally, he's like hating himself. He's just like, I don't want to fucking do this. Like, A, this is not my vibe. I'm not into any of this music. And B, like, this is a hugely negative, like, what am I actually doing here? What am I contributing to? To the discourse i'm just like ripping into people for the sake i suppose there is a place for that you know you can rip into a few pop stars that's what i was going to say is yeah. i would love to make out i was some sort of angel who said yeah, i just feel the relentless negativity and the degradation of these two brilliantly talented women as mm. you know just reducing them to body parts i couldn't possibly be a part of it that wasn't what i was saying yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know i was saying like yeah i'm happy to be part of the knockabout fun but i just i either need to be on the show or I need to get off the show. Yeah. But because it suited them to have me there, it, basically what happened was I joined it in Series 2. It started taking off in Series 3. Yeah. By that point, I was already saying to them, There's, I, I've got no reason to be here. I'm never... I'm, you know, it cuts to me, but I'm never, I'm never do... actually on it. <laughs> yeah, you could, like, pre-record your slot. Like, literally just sit in there, smile, nod, and then that's it. Like, yeah, cut me in later. It's fine. Yeah. Cut me, you know, I'll come in for one day with ten shirts, sit there and go, ha, <laughs> <laughs> And then you can just, you know, pepper those in, and then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be at home if you need me. Yeah. So, really what happened was that over the course of about four years or something of, of making these series, during each series, I was like, "Now nah, look, you've got. Uh, there's got to be a thing I do, right?" And I used to always um, talk about shooting stars. That you had George Dawes, you had Vic and Bob. Like it was their show. It was they were doing stuff. But George had George's song. Yeah. And then when they had Angelos on it, it was like there was a moment that was like, "Okay, that's that's why this guy's here." He's right. going to do something mad at the top of the show for a minute and a half or, or whatever it was. Yeah. And again, I wasn't saying I must have that. I must have. It was just, I need a reason to be here that when you look, you go, oh, that's why that guy's on the show. Yeah. And for, for like four years, those people were saying to me, yeah, no, we're, we're actually working on a thing and we're going to do a thing and we're going to do a thing. And then the next series came up and I was like, right, great. So what's the thing? And they're like, well, a bit tricky this time around because we've just got to get the show off to the, and we've got these guests and we've got to do this other thing, but we're, we're seeding it, we're seeding it in. And it went on and on and on and on and on. Please, please tell me this is building up to like a Will Ferrell, like, did you tip over the fucking desk and go like, well, fuck you, you know, did you well, really? It, basically, a week came at the beginning of a new series mm. where we'd now been enough of a hit that they were going to release a DVD. Right. Right, which was a bit of a coup for a panel show. It's, you know, it wasn't like that. You'd, you'd get, you know, um, Lee Francis, who is um, uh, Keith Lennon, mm. had made more money than Jesus, you know, more, more money than Croesus out of uh, Bo Selector. And, you know, people had made fortunes out of that market. But as a panel show, they were, you know, they do like a best of or whatever, but they were getting one. And so they... Basically, they put up posters promoting the DVD, and the DVD, the front cover, was Keith Lemon and Holly and Fern. And I was like, but I'm on it every week too. Yeah. When you're selling the show, you're now selling it. <laughs> I've been saying for ages, I don't really feel like I'm included in this. Yeah. And now the front cover of the DVD is not me, and I'm on it every fucking week. Yeah, and yeah. Then, I'm walking around and the only billboards that have ever been put up promoting the show is that picture. Yeah. You're, so like, they say, you're like that scene in, uh, you know, the No Doubt video where they're like, they tell her to sort of step forward and then they like push the rest of the panel. Oh, right. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I was saying that to them as a problem. And then as I was saying it to them, 
somebody else came into the room and said, uh, oh, have you been told about next week? And I went, what do you mean next week? They went, oh, we're going to be recording slightly later. I was like, all right, why is that? They said, oh, Keith and Holly and Fern are going on with a pre-recording Jonathan Ross to promote the DVD. Oh, wow. What, all three of them together? Yeah. What, as the faces of Celebrity Juice? Yeah. Well, why am I not going? Oh, well, they've only asked for you. Uh, They've only asked for those three. Sure, but when they ask, (laughs) you go back and say, right, but there's actually four of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, no, it's not. Right, so... (laughs) <laughs> they told me all of this. Yeah. And three minutes later, I'm sat in the studio recording the next show. My involvement, let's say, was lackluster. Did you just sit there with a face like a smacked ass the whole time? Were you like, three days later, I got a phone call from the producer saying, "Listen, you've either got to cheer up and just accept what this is, yeah, or you know, you need to think seriously about your future on this show." And I said. I don't need to think seriously about the future. I've told you exactly what's what for the last however many years. You have mucked me off left, right and centre saying, oh, we're going to get round to it. We're going to get round to it. You also asked me to do you a favour that at one point really stuck in my craw, but I did it literally on the premise that you sent people into me to say, as our mate, will you do this? As our mate. Yeah. So you basically have mucked me off, strung me along, and now you're telling me I need to look like I cheer up. I'll tell you what, why don't you fuck off? <laughs> Oh man, said, I'm well, here. I'm here like for the brutality that. and the sex. I will be like that. Yeah. Um, and he said, "Have a couple of days thinking about it," and then he phoned me back and went, "Actually, no, don't have any days thinking about it." I went, "Good, yeah, fine." Yeah. So after that, my agent said to me, "Maybe we should have a little rest from television for a while." Yeah. And the guy that she'd employed had come from a theatrical background, yeah. and he basically said, "Would you like me to have a look at theatre?" So at this point, we Scooby Doo. Wibbly wobbly, yeah. To the uh, like four-year-old boy in a school play who went, oh yeah, I want to do this, and literally from the age of four, watching the Muppet Show and school plays and all of that, had only ever wanted to be an actor, ideally a comedy actor, but an actor, yeah. especially a theatre actor. And by the time I was thirteen, I went to a school that was a fee-paying school, but I ended up on a scholarship there which was a theatre scholarship. Yeah. Because the guy who was the head of theatre had come from a state school and knowing that my family didn't have any money, yeah. he went, well, actually, this guy's good. We should get him to stay here. So yeah. he took me under his wing. He gave me more plays to read and more stuff to read than was just part of the drama GCSE kind of curriculum. He gave me a love of Shakespeare and verse and also uh left-wing lightly comedic plays of the 1960s and 70s right so that guy david proudlock basically informed everything i loved about theater and politics really yeah and that sometimes you've got to stand up for your principles and that people with money you know are going to want to tell you what to do but there's normally a way around it and 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 is he still is he still around he um he's he, he retired from teaching uh, a, a few years ago. Yeah, he sounds like quite an inspiring guy. Oh, mate, uh, there are so many people who I now bump into who all work in theatre, and it wasn't necessarily from that same school, Yeah, but who all, to a man, you know, are, 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 are like, my God, you know, working under Dave, that really did tell you what was what. He was also very no bullshit, which was joyful, because school school has sort of two types of teachers in a way right there's like the touchy feely and the shouting at you ones right yeah whereas he had this amazing trick of because it was drama basically if you were there if you were doing it then you really did want to be there Mm. but he was like there's only one way of doing that there's only one way of making this good and that is working incredibly hard and yes you should enjoy it but it's it's work yeah so that ethic of, oh, it's meant to be fun, but you have to, it's really hard. It's, <laughs> such, to... a, it's such an important thing to sort of, to, to learn, isn't it? And I, like, I've talked about this before on different shows about how late to that I was. Like it wasn't until I was about 32, 31, somewhere around then, that I really started slogging it hard doing stand-up. And stand-up was the first thing where I was just like, 
I'm I'm just like locked in. I'm just going to keep gigging like two a night, three a night, every night of the week, five, six, seven times a week. Like, and then you start to feel yourself get better at it. And you're like, oh, fuck, this is like a this is a superpower, you know, and there's a real like it's where everything comes from. It's like a sort of self-esteem drug that and I wish I could have developed it. I wish I could have had like an inspiring teacher or mentor when I was like, you know, 14 or 17 or whatever. Yeah. So that sounds awesome, man, that you had that. Yeah. But it meant that literally all of my life I'd wanted to be a theatre actor. Mm. And then because we my family was skin, the idea at 18 of having money to go to drama school, like, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah. What did, what did your parents sort of like, were they supportive or had they previously said, well, you need to go out and get a job or like? It wasn't that. It was, they were, my mum, actually my mum and my dad were always very supportive. But at the point as a family, the money ran out. Mm. And then the money really did run out. And then they separated and then divorced. Right. It wasn't really like at that point they went, so what do you want to do? It was like every man for himself. You know? like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think to a degree, if I'd have gone to them and said, hey, there's this thing I really want to do and I'm passionate about it. And I, but um, a couple of years ago, I got diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, and that is a, I mean, you know, look how many Edinburgh shows and people talking about neurodiversity do we need at the moment? But it made sense of everything in my life. And there's this odd grieving process that comes with that. But looking back, I knew at that point that my entire school career had been full of people going, this kid's great. I mean, if he made any effort, he'd be really great. But yeah, just, you know. Do so- you know, like, sorry to, to sort of interject, <laughs> like you're so first time I actually encountered you i suppose like without I, I think i was aware of you on celebrity juice but the first time i was aware of you as a comedian i went to the comedy store one time and i think you were emceeing have i got oh, that right yeah, yeah that was that was that's the only thing i'm really good at <laughs> and i can imagine yeah and um or rather i remember you know from from that gig but uh as as a working comic do you find like a, an awful lot of stand-ups are sort of neurodivergent and ADHD Mate. drenched? And Angela Barnes said recently, who herself was diagnosed with ADHD, mm. she said the moment I actually understood what that thing was, I just looked at all of com- all, everyone I knew in comedy and went, oh, to the point where now when I talk to a comedian who I don't think has ADHD, I think to myself, what the fuck are you doing this for? <laughs> Yes, yeah. It's like, like so. It, I'm I'm in a a little kind of political comedy satire like chat group, and it's sort of a staple of the. It's like you know we refer to ourselves as like like hashtag ADHD kids because it's like there is an obsessive element to it. There's a need to get to the joke to the punchline. The joke always comes first. Yeah. Um, and it's it's gotten to the point now, and this is going to sound horrendously arrogant or weird, but. It's gone to the point now where when I'm interacting socially with people who I don't think are like that, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a bit, I'm not quite like what you're doing this for, but I'm a bit like, I feel like I should be more engaged in this conversation. Yeah. I'm, you know, drifting a bit here, you know? Right. I don't, how many people are watching this live stream? Oh, fucking, I don't know. I haven't. <laughs> I'm the worst host. Uh, no, let me... don't worry about that. It, I, it was just if you had the stats on your screen. I was no. just going to say, if there aren't very many people watching it, then I'll yeah. be really honest. And if there, if, if we think there aren't going to be necessarily legions of people, I can probably deny this that it ever happened. Sure. Muggles. Muggles? Muggles. What's muggles? In the world of wow. Harry Potter. Sorry, excuse me. Carry on. No, that's all right. In the world of Harry Potter, non-magical people mm. are called muggles. It's what wizards call normal people. Right. Okay. I get it. I'm not familiar with Harry Potter. Um, I was probably distracted and working on a routine at the time. Mate, it's um, it's uh, it's not something that in 2023 we're recommending each other get into. It's just <laughs> if you, if before you knew uh, that yeah. uh, the writer was a problem, uh, you may have just known it. But the thing is, it is like wizards and witches. It is like, you know, there's this other power that you tap into. And when people have asked me, you know, because I haven't actually done stand-up for, like, a, a long, long time, mm. 
I did a couple of comparing gigs recently uh, for Altitude Festival, but literally only because my girlfriend was already booked to to, to play it. Right. And she said to me, do you want to come with me? And the promoter, who's a friend of mine, went, oh, I'll get you comparing a couple of the shows. I was like, all right, well, fingers crossed yeah. that goes right. Yeah, but other than that, literally have not done any stand-up in a very long time, like over a decade. But you're doing theatre production. We should probably plug your show, right? So it starts on the 13th of September in... Remind me of the name of the theatre. I've got it here. Park Theatre in Finsbury Park. There you go. And it's called It's Coming Straight For Us. Is that right? It's headed straight towards us. There we go. But I'll, I'll talk about that in more detail separately to sure. this. Which... Uh... Oh, shit. We lost Rufus. Hold on, guys. Hold on. We'll get Rufus back. The the miracle of live television. Hey man. Yeah, I don't know. We lost you there for a sec. There we go. Yeah, Sorry. Right. You crack yeah, uh, you carry on. Where were you? Uh um. Oh, people ask me, do you miss doing stand-up comedy? Yes. And I always say, not really. I just miss comedians. Mm. Like, I think that more than any other group of people, they are my tribe or they have been my tribe. Have you seen that round table where Chris Rock talks to, I think it's Louis C.K. and Ricky Gervais and Seinfeld. And he says something in there about like, when he goes to a party, he kind of like he struggles to interact with people. But then as soon as he finds out that one person is a stand up, he's just like, ah, comedian, you know, like he can engage with them. And it's it's true. Like it's it, anyone that's listening to this that's done stand up, whether it's like open mic level and you've stayed behind afterwards after the show's finished and you've just all had a beer and a cigarette out the front. Or if you're a semi pro or a pro, like you hang out in the green room. Um, there's just Actually, something about it, man. If you compare, you're there at the beginning. People come in and out, but, you know, while the first act's on, you're sat backstage chatting to the second act, chatting to the third act. And if you do weekends away, then you're all sat in the dressing room. And yeah. I, I cut my teeth largely working at the Comedia when Stephen Grant worried that he was just Brighton comedian Stephen Grant. Yeah. He said to me, do you want to take over some of the weekends for me while I try and spread my wings a bit further out? So I ended up with like a year's worth of gigs pretty much hanging out with some of the best comedians in the country in the dressing room. Yeah. Yeah. And like, tra like trading ideas, like going over what happened that night. Um, but also like the, just the, 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 the learning the pattern, like learning the, oh yeah, right. Because yeah, that's how you can construct that as an idea. And that's how, yeah. And just, you know, there were, I always think of Ben Norris in a funny kind of a way. He's a brilliant stand-up comedian, and you should absolutely go and watch Ben Norris on stage be a stand-up comedian. Mm. But I swear to God, I have never been in the company of anyone funnier than Ben Norris. Yeah. Funny as he ever was on stage. Trust me, backstage, <laughs> like, you know, his... he was Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, and Lucy K, Ricky Gervais all rolled into one. I mean, like... Here's, here's a weird question for you. Did you have a friend when you were younger, who was like the funny one who didn't yeah. go into stand up? Yeah. And do you, are you still in touch with them now? Like, does it break your heart that they didn't do it? No. Really? No. No, because I've always likened it to this. You could go to a nightclub and see somebody really dancing and you'd go, oh my God, look at them go. Aren't they brilliant? But you wouldn't then walk up to them and go, we'd love you to join the Bolshoi. You know, we run the Bolshoi Ballet and we've seen you dance here in this nightclub and so we'd love you to join us. Because yeah. we all understand that even though that person is a great dancer, being a ballet dancer is a different thing altogether. It requires a different approach and all of that. So I actually think the, the I, I don't care that my funny mate never uh, did stand up. It's it, the other, the one that I find harder are the stand-ups I knew on the open mic circuit who were funny, but necessarily had to alter what made them funny to try and make a living at doing stand-up. Yeah, yeah. 
stand-up club audiences change what you do. Right. Because I, I've got to be able to make a room full of stag and hen parties laugh yeah. reliably to be able to play whole weekends in big comedy clubs so that I can actually earn a living at doing this. Yeah, and this is this is a big thing, man. Like, not many people know that, like, because to, to the general public, they just think, oh, comedy is comedy. And, yeah, like like I'm sort of alluding to here, if you've got a funny friend, oh, you should be a comedian. But um, but it's not that cut and dry. You know, there's these different shades and gradients of what stand-up is. And, yeah, as you're tapping into there, a comedian who fucking crushes it at a jongler's on a Friday night with a 20-minute club set making stag and hen nights laugh is not going to like, if you try going on stage at a place like that and do your heady introspective, you know, like, is it like not a punchline every two minutes, no crowd work. It's just stories Mate, from your childhood. Not a punchline like, every 20 seconds. Yeah. 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 Um, um, so to be really good at that, don't get me wrong, is a real skill. And I could just reel off probably a dozen uh, incredible club comics but there is nobody in TV who's watching those people and going, oh, we've got to get them on our show. We've got Because it's a different thing. Yeah. They would much rather see somebody who didn't really have that skill, mm. but it was new and interesting and unlike what you've already seen and, 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 and. So, and, and look, nobody ever said the entertainment business was a meritocracy. No. You know, it, it isn't that you earn your stripes and then you get your shot. It's not that. It's the Wild West. Yeah. So, the idea that there should be a you know a way of doing it, or these people should have more opportunities, it's just it's it, it, it's just not how it works. That's really interesting because I always used to look at stand up like it was one of the few remaining meritocracies. Like it's I know the entertainment industry, the TV industry is a, a different beast or, or a broader beast, but I always used to look at comedy like it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter like like if we were hanging out with Dirty Dicks after the show finished. We would be, there would be like a gay guy over here, a black guy there, like an old dude over here. Like it's just different people from different walks of life. But the funniest guy would win the clap off at the end of yeah. the night. So to me, it was like, this is like we were saying before we started streaming. I was like, to me, this is the last, one of the last things you can't fake it. It's a meritocracy. It's about who's funniest. Um, so it's interesting no, to well. hear that it's not necessarily like that once... No, but that's it. That's the difference between comedy as a sort of pure idea, mm. you know, and comedy as an industry. Right, right. You know, there yeah. are changing tastes, there are changing mores. I mean, you know, it's also true of actors. It's also, true, you know, of the arts in general is um, funny enough in the, in the play that I'm doing at the moment, there's reference to a character who went to drama school at the same time as the character I play. Mm. And um, she, uh, she's a black woman and we all left drama school at the same time. Mm. And one of them goes, yeah, she couldn't really hack it as an actor. And one of the other characters goes, well, she was black and it was the nineties. She played three prostitutes in a row and pretty much saw the writing on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's right. That is absolutely what it was. So who's getting the chances? You know, anytime I hear, you know, people like me, including me, mm. saying, oh, well, you know, it's all right for everyone else, but what about middle-aged straight white men? You're like, yeah, no, had a pretty good run of it as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the fact that things are changing and that tastes change. It's like, yeah, that's how it works. That's how it's always worked. Well, yeah. You know, what's your... It seems a weird argument to me all, all while, like whenever I hear people saying like, no, there should be, you know, this is a 98% white country. So why is there a black guy on every other ad? But like, I'm always like, why, what kind of a mind says no to a more like interesting palette? Do you know what I mean? No. That's probably a really crude way of saying it, but it's like, if you could have different cultures, languages spoken, different cuisines, different styles of music. Why the fuck would you shut your door to that and go like, nah, I'm good with Morris dancing and Yorkshire pies, you cunt. Like, what? Yeah. what are you doing? But there is actually an answer to that. Oh, go, go ahead. Well, the answer is that we are raised in a culture that tells you this is what it is, mm. right? Um, if you do this, you're doing it right. And if you don't do it like that, 
you're a cunt. Right. <laughs> right. So the notion of British exceptionalism is just written through everyone like a stick of rock. All yeah. of this Meghan Markle stuff, right, is sold to the over 50s hard. Yeah. Hard. Like, I think most people under 40 don't really see the big deal. But anyone over 50, they're like, yeah, but the royal family, though. Even if they hate them, in inverted commas, yeah, but the royal family, though. Yeah. yeah but it's the Queen, isn't it? It's like she's given her life to this country. She's like, really? Yeah. I think Markle thinks she can just turn. What? Some American. Hang on. What? Some American actress. And it's because Ooh. they were all raised by people who had lived through the war. Yeah. And the whole of culture, the whole of everywhere you looked was, we're the best, we're the goodies, we do it right, we're yeah. the ones. Oh, the fucking French. Every punchline in every sitcom for like, you know, 20 years is Johnny Foreigner. Oh, yeah, garlic bread, fucking, all right. The Germans have got no sense of humour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all, the whole, it, it, it's, it's a thing that you just do not, question because it's so prevalent do you say sense... we're the best deep down everyone knows that we're the best empire when you call people on empire they go oh yeah a bit shaky but there's a thing underneath that they go yeah but it was still the right thing though wasn't it because we sort of civilized everyone and and we helped because you know all right maybe there were a few guns fired away maybe not ideal but deep down the yeah. world's better off because we are the best. So the more of us that was in the world, the better off everyone was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people from, you know, that, from that generation, even, even now, you know, like last year, so pretty fucking recent where they say stuff like, you know, it just, uh, it just makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like, um, you know, this country, country X or country Y. I mean, it was, it was running pretty well when we were still running it. And that, you know, then we gave it back to them and then, oh, well, you know, look, and it's just like, have you got any fucking idea what you're talking about? Really? Yeah. Like, oh, mate. It's... I mean, that is that is the horror of it is that like we literally have a government in power that is currently seeking. I mean, and what's her chops? He's running for London mayor. Yeah. Yeah. She's recently come out backing this campaign that's like no regrets or no. Mm. <laughs> like, no well, like, apology. Yeah. Like, Suella Braverman was saying something similar like a couple of months ago at the. Uh national conservatism conference she was like up there behind a podium white people have nothing to feel guilty about and i was doing a thing about it at the time i was just like nobody's saying like oh you're white so you should feel guilt like you should feel guilty about people aren't it's, it's about institutional racism it's about recognizing history it's about making amends and and just acknowledging the role that we played it's not like why are you trying to turn this into something that it isn't yeah, anyone saying that country ran better when we ran it, it's like, what, before we got there, shot all the people in charge, took everything of any value, yeah. set up companies that were then just going to you know, rinse them of their national resources, Yeah, and then and then we left them. And, you know, ever since then, they just haven't been able to get their shit together. Yeah, that country was running so much better. Uh, for who? <laughs> right. And the, and the real, like... You know, the, the grey cloud that you walk under from that point onwards is you walk around Liverpool or Bath or Bristol, you know, and you go, wow, you know, look, isn't it gorgeous? All these lovely open Georgian piazzas and all sorts. The moment you realise where the money came to build any of that, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, fuck. Or, or you can just walk around London. Like, I used to live in East yeah. India Quay with no fucking knowledge of, like, the background of the East India Company. I was just like, oh, that's a weird name for a fire. Yeah, I guess yep. that's what they called it, you know, and you just, and, yeah. and I'm, you know, I'm somewhat naive or ignorant to this, but I'm positive that there are still street names in London that are named after like slavers and oh, shit. Yeah. Just like in Bristol, there was the fucking statue and, and nobody thought that was an issue. That's the fucking wild thing about it is it's just like, yeah, we've had multiple complaints. We've had all these people saying they think that it's hugely problematic and it actually is quite upsetting to them with their heritage and they don't want... We're just going to fob them all. Ah, just fight. Yeah, put it up there. Polish it. Make it look even better, you know? Yeah. 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 It's... I mean, it is just jaw-dropping. 
So do you, yeah. Do you like, sense that this sort of like the British exceptionalism stuff is because I agree. I think I think it does run through uh not even a subset of the population, but like an entire generation and some of the next generation, depending on how worldly they are and feel. However, do you sense that the British exceptionalism stuff is kind of at its end game now? Like we've we've literally we've do, well, we're kind of doing Brexit at the moment. The idea was, oh, well, nothing will actually get that bad here because this is Britain and stuff like that doesn't happen in Britain because we, we used to run the bloody world. You know, do you think that now when things do get actually really fucking bad, that finally that shit might be put to bed? I think that it makes the lie harder to believe. Mm. Um, I suppose drinking the Kool-Aid and sort of sticking at it like is not something I have an awful amount of hope for people kind of departing from. You know what I mean? No. I mean, wasn't it? <laughs> there was an article in The Telegraph that went viral in the last couple of weeks where, you know, exactly the paper that has been going, Brexit, Brexit, hard exit, you know, uh, lower the taxes, uh, you know, like in that paper, a guy wrote an op-ed piece that was, if you're under 20, you should probably think about leaving the country. Oh, yeah. And that's that's not even an isolated like piece. There's been about three or four of those now. I think there's one in the Telegraph. I've seen one in the mail. And yeah, and, and I agree with them because it, it's like, like, here's here's where my head is at, Rufus. And you can you can tell me if you broadly agree with this or not. I've got I've got a feeling I probably will. Yeah. <laughs> But I feel like we're so deep in the hole now. So we left the single market. We're sort of flatlining. You know, they'll cling on to a 0.2% growth here and there. Well, they can, but mostly we're just, you know, we're not growing. And we desperately need money for public services, but there is none. Because when they borrow the money, it's now at such a high interest rate, thanks largely to Trust and Quartang. They can't borrow more money. They can't magic more money because that would destabilize the currency. If they make the pound weaker, again, that means imports come in, inflation goes up. Mm -hmm. So they can't magic money. They can't get growth without joining the single market, which they won't do because that would be hugely embarrassing for them. Uh, they've basically got no way of creating more growth to pay for the public services and the running of the country that we need. Meanwhile, all of your tax money, my tax money, everyone's tax money, most of it just goes on servicing this debt. So we yeah. just keep on circling this drain and as yeah. far as i can see there's not really any way out of that so i'm like we are actually quasi fucked and the only yeah. way out of it really is that you emigrate at this stage yeah 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 but here's the other i mean like the meta on that <laughs> i think mm. is when people talk about growth right there's only two things in the economy goods and services yeah right so anytime you're talking about growth you are either talking about making more shit or doing more shit yeah making more shit always involves cutting something down or ripping it out of the ground yeah resources so or having more people who require more resources to provide more services well, those services all require things. So you are still ultimately trying to then have to make more things that you've got to either chop down or rip out of the ground. Mm. For as long as we, as a species, have our society built around the premise of pull a thing out of the ground or chop it down, we're fucked. Yeah. We, we, we are literally, just, we are the parasite that is just, you know... <sighs> The mosquito is going to, you know, reach saturation point and fly off and the, the host will die. Yeah. Until we have, like, I mean, you know, we talk about systematic racism or systematic prejudice or, you know, systems in that way. The whole concept of how an economy works and that your one's economy requires growth. Mm. We have to change that. Yeah. The only reason that we've got an economy, theoretically, is that how do we organise ourselves to bring about as wide a benefit as possible to as many people as possible? Mm. Well, here we are in late-stage capitalism, where even the people at the very, very top who are doing very, very well out of it, thank you very much, even they are going to be living on a piece of burnt coal. Yeah. So either we've actually got to genuinely wake up to that fact 
and have a very, very almost like surreal reimagining. Like, do you know the thing about um, what uh, what's it called? Capital, capitalist realism. No, no, not familiar. I may, I, I, I'm sure it's called capitalist realism. It might be worth googling, but it's this. Essentially, it is easier for everyone to imagine the end of the earth than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Everybody just accepts, yeah, but that is what it is. This is how it is. Yeah. Like, there is, I mean, what are you going to do? Communism? No, mate. I mean, we've, we've shown <laughs> that it doesn't work. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Just have a barter system? No, everyone knows that's not how it's going to work. I, I always look at it like, if you imagine capitalism is rooted entirely within the paradigm of fossil fuel extraction and consumption, which is effectively what it is. Like everything comes back to being able to power a drill, yeah. uh, methods of like fracturing rock to get the gas out, like whatever it is, whatever the product is, that it's always based on that. So if you assume that oil is probably going to run out in the next like 20 years, 50 years max, I don't know if it's going to be like people won't have to... <laughs> reimagine this stuff like things are gonna like and, and i i'm sort of alluding here to the fact that we'll, we kind of have to wind down civilization quite substantially uh, and a lot of people might be getting some mental image of like well yeah you know i'll just live in a tree house or i'll just build yeah. myself a little hut or anything and i'm always very quick to point out that no things like you might you might get to that yeah <laughs> but things are gonna get really fucking deathy before that, like people will right. break into your fucking house and bludgeon you for a can of beans before you get there to there is an argument, and a pretty good argument, that the Syrian refugee crisis is an environmental crisis, mm. right? There are increasing sections of the world that cannot produce the food to, so then it becomes a war for resources, or rather, it becomes a you know poverty of resources. What happens to people who can't get the resources? They start shifting and moving elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same with Ukraine. Like, I mean, people at the beginning of the invasion into Ukraine, people were like, why are we saying this is like, why are we accepting the narrative that this is about Russia invading to liberate Ukraine from Nazis? There's that narrative. And then there's the other one that's like, we're the goodies, right? Uh, we'll fight back against Putin because Putin's gone mad. And he's just a crazy lunatic and we, we're the goodies. This is basically like Hitler 2.0. So we're, we're going to go in there. I'm like, why are we subscribing to these two very simplistic ideas? Like, this is about energy, man. This is about natural resources. Ukraine has a lot of natural, uh, natural gas. Um, it was about to sign a deal with the EU, which would have competed with Russia. That's why Putin has gone into Ukraine. Like, why? Who's believing this fairy story? Right. But, but um yeah but, but you point a world leader who's gonna go guys mm. guys gas and oil no no you know we've that's, got solar panels now so come on with <laughs> that's the only thing i can i can yeah sort of channel to make sense of it is that it is simply too terrifying for the general public to understand and accept and deal with for them to know how fucked we are with the expiration of oil and oil reserves. I think if everyone out there knew how close we are to like, you know, it's been called peak oil in a few other terms. If everyone knew how close we are to the winding down of civilization as they know it, I truly believe like there would be civil unrest. People would not be able to handle it. There'd be looting, murdering, scavenging for resources. Yeah. Um, you know, um, there are two theories on this. Uh, well, sorry, that's not necessarily quite how I'm putting that. The, but the model is basically, if there isn't, if there isn't food in the supermarkets for three days, this right. entire country will burn down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's you. You saw how fucking mental people went over a, a lack of toilet paper. So, <laughs> in most countries in the world, when you've taken a shit, you wash your asshole. Yeah. But in this country, it was the idea that you wouldn't be able to use a piece of disposable tree yeah. to clean your ring piece, sent people into a sort of sp unfathomable spiral. Well, you think how that's going to be when you can't get a potato? Yeah. Right? Like, so, so that's the thing that the people at the top actually do know and have respect for yeah. is there is a base level of this is what we have to provide. And as long as we're providing that, 
most people will willingly accept whatever lie you tell them what you know oh we've got to do this we've got to do that well it seems a bit off but all right well i mean you know we're eating and it's warm like okay mm. but once those things start to go yeah that's when it really kicks off well this is why i, I obviously aid sorry i was going to tell yeah. you one other thing because this is the thing that the conversation we've had always makes me think of in my lifetime there's been one man who whatever he has ever said i've listened to and thought that's right that is wise that is right and it's noam chomsky right and noam chomsky was being interviewed about the rise of the republican party and uh, sorry the, the the rise of sort of authoritarian fascism within the republican party right the, like trumpism uh, yeah the monstering of jeremy corbyn and his politics um and, and Chomsky's a you know a Jewish person. He was saying like I don't see where this whole anti-Semitism thing you know really cut. I see why he's being painted as that, and I can see that he could have dealt with things in a different way. But like calling this guy who has spent a lifetime at anti-racism rallies, like he's like okay, there, there may be anti problems. I mean, this is what Noam Chomsky said. I'm sort of running cover here for my point of view. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but like. It was it was him saying that, right? So he outlined all of these things, like the the rise of authoritarianism, corporatism, uh, the environmental catastrophe. And at the end of this interview, <laughs> the interviewer said to him, "Well, no, um, I think anyone listening to this will have uh, will have been given some fairly uh, weighty food for thought, um, and, and 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 may find themselves asking, you know, well." feeling the way you do, knowing what you know. Um, what what is it what is it that provides you comfort? Yeah. And Noam Jobsky, without dropping a beat, is still looking at this guy dead in the eye, goes, that I'll be dead soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna like, say, like, what one of my like last questions to you is gonna be like, do you have much like I'm my hope is dead on the floor, Rufus. I'm like, oh, yeah. we're so fucked. Uh, oh yeah. Do you are you in any way sort of hopeful or optimistic for the future? No, no. But okay, good. You've never been more relatable to me, so that's. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Yeah. No, no, I. Because the thing is, I think there are some solutions. Mm. But we're just so far away from being able to implement them. You know, like look at the people we've got in charge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at the point where we know the planet is on fire. The bloke in number 10 is going, good news, we're opening up new gas and oil fields. Yeah, like, or what? he's just like, like, I know everyone was talking about Grant Shapps yesterday, but a thing that got missed was that the person they backfilled his old role with, he was energy secretary, energy and net, net zero, right? And the person they put into that role so he could move into defence is, a, like, she's voted consistently against, like, net zero policies and, you know, climate change addressing policies so it's just like are they even taking this shit seriously doesn't seem like it no they absolutely are not and it is because as you've just said right we're talking about like it really will all come crashing down in 20 years 30 years mm. well they're all thinking great well i'll be you know all, all of the backers all the people either think that they're going to live in um subterranean bunkers in new zealand that they can pay for with their yeah. multi multi millions or that they'll be dead. So what do they care? They would rather make hay while they're alive yeah. than worry about how awful it's going to be after they're dead. Maybe they should... Uh, I mean, my plan, I don't know what your plan is, uh, but I've decided to build a cult because I'm thinking, like, in the post-apocalyptic world, you're going to need... You need a tribe, right? You need somebody, yeah. like, people to rally around you, strengthen numbers, all of that. So I'm building a cult on Patreon. <laughs> Here's yeah. my plug. Uh, yeah. So I'm 23 deep at the moment, um, okay. and uh, and yeah, that's if if anyone's watching this and they are not yet on the Patreon, jump on patreon.com forward slash Abe Thompson. There we go, my one plug. I think we might be able to string it out for like a hundred years mm. if if you if you were able to sort of build a defendable commune on a Hebridean island. Yeah, you've got to go somewhere that's fucking cold now. Yeah. Oh, I see. So it heats up and then... So that every, while everything else is warming up, it's bare... Like, what you're really trying to circumvent yeah. is two things. One, you've got to go somewhere where there's actually usable soil still. Yeah. 
which because that's really a problem uh like literal soil is going to run out in the next 15 years based on current modern agricultural methods okay so you need to be somewhere there you need to be somewhere not currently attached to the mainland because anyone who can drive to you will just murder you for your crops <laughs> so you need to you know <laughs> you need that i'm and just going to say this thing, now you're, you're the most on-brand guest I think I've ever had on this. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> just, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, just like bringing, fun... bringing your light to our darkness, Rufus. Well, uh, I, do, I, I can offer some light, but the final part of that is that at the point the next wars are fought and they're fought with nuclear weapons, I think there's only so many countries that get involved before you basically, regardless of nuclear fallout, elicit nuclear winter, which yeah. is that the sky turns black, no sunlight gets through, and everything on Earth dies anyway. Yeah, yeah. Do you so, ever, just quickly, because I know you've yeah, got to jet off in a second, um, but do you ever, do you ever sort of uh, try to impart this wisdom to your girlfriend? Interesting. Well, because I was going to say there is some light in all of this. Okay. Which is simply that any story worth telling has an end. Mm. Right? Like, that's the thing, like, philosophically... That's the place that you've got to get to is things without an end don't have any meaning. Yeah. So understanding that we are so past saving mm. then actually allows you to think, oh, right. Oh, oh, there really is just this. Yeah. It really is just this. It's... And at that point, you get to go out and smash yourself to pieces and go dancing and see comedy. And because none of it matters, there is no saving it. There is no plan for the future. Who gives a fuck what the Sun <laughs> writes about me? Who gives a fuck what the Daily Mail writes about me? They are all cunts of the highest order. They are, in, they are so obviously in the pay of the corporate powers that are lying to everyone. But yeah. the moment that you realise just how wide-ranging that lie is, yeah. your only choice is to stop worrying about it and have a fucking good time. Yeah. Oh, amen to that. I mean, right. it's... Uh, the only reason I ask is, like, so I, I once went out on a drive with my girlfriend and she was talking about something or other and maybe we were talking about a house that we were thinking we might buy or something. I don't know. We're planning for the future in this car ride and the kids are in the back and uh i started basically telling her like what my thoughts for the future were and bear in mind you know she's thinking we got these two kids and we're gonna send them to school and you know then maybe we could do this and we could invest in this like you know a little thing here and she's planning for the future she's excited about it and i'm like like in the next 10 15 years oil is going to run out and civilization as we know it is going to fucking die and the best hope that we have is buying a house in the middle of a field because mm. if they can break into somebody's house down their own road they'll break into that but they won't come into the middle of a bit like and i'm sort of like just regaling her with my utter despair at the state of the and by the time we got back into our driveway she had a face like a smacked up like i had buzz killed the entire oh, yeah. conversation i was just curious like if you talk like do you talk to your girlfriend about this stuff and is she on a similar sort of wavelength or is she like actually Rufus is having a weird one. I'll just leave him to it. Or I think it's with us. It's just more that we accept that it's like it's it, we're on the Titanic. We've hit the iceberg. The alarm's going off. Yeah. And I'm looking at her. I mean, look, this is the point, right? She's my girlfriend, not my wife. My <laughs> wife and I are getting a divorce. <laughs> right. So that's been in the making for a number of years. She's my girlfriend. So we both feel at that point that we're the two kids sat at the bar going, so this thing's going under, is it? Yeah, this thing's going under. And everyone's going to die, are they? Yeah, everyone's going to die. Want to fuck? It's <laughs> <laughs> a fantastic note to leave it on. Uh, thank you so much, Rufus Hound. Guys, make sure you give him a follow on Twitter if you're not already. No, don't follow me on Twitter. Twitter's a oh, dying thing. Yeah. Fuck Twitter. All right. Fuck uh, all it. Do come and see an amazing play. It was yes. written by Aid Edmondson and Nigel Planer, who fucking reinvented comedy and the national sense of humour. 
uh, in Aid's case, to my imagining, twice. Um, it's, it, it is ultimately, so not directly, but in some respects, talking about many of the themes that we've touched on. Mm. Uh, it's me. It's a, a new actor called Nenda Neuhurer that people won't know, but she's fucking phenomenal. And Sam West, who anybody who's ever heard of actors should probably know, comes from a dynasty that is unparalleled um, and is an unbelievable actor in his own right, uh, multi, you know, lauded and all sorts. We're only on for five weeks. It's in Finsbury Park. And if you want something that will absolutely, uh, you'll laugh your socks off, but at the end of it, also walk out thinking, holy shit, that is, uh, that is food for thought, then um, come and see us. Because uh, I think it might be the best thing I've ever done. Awesome, man. Awesome. And it's at the Park Theatre, right? Park Theatre, Finsbury Park. Cool. And it starts on September the 13th, and it's called It's Headed Straight Towards Us. Uh, so go and check that out. Um, guys, quick nod to the Patreons. Um, shout out to my God-tier followers. Uh, it's Bowman, Kai, Chris, David, Martin, Mojo Sabian, Peter Del Monte, whose name I love and cannot say seriously, uh, Pingu, Silent, Stuart, T-Rex, Aaron... Um, Alex, Jeff, Ned, Sarah, Simon, uh, Ailsa, Chris, Fat Shirley, Malcolm, Rodri, and Kerry. Thank you so, so much, guys, for your continued support of the show and everything else that I'm doing. Uh, if you are keen on the show, if you are enjoying it, uh, do jump onto patreon.com forward slash aid Thompson. Uh, there's a bunch of benefits on there. You get access to the Discord chat. You get episodes of the podcast two days ahead of everyone else. You get first look at the live tickets or live show tickets. Uh, next show is the 28th of September. Um, and after that, the 10th of November. Uh, that's it from me. Once again, thanks to Rufus Hand for joining me tonight. I'll be back next Wednesday with a solo show. Until next time, keep it hashtag booge, strictly hashtag bimfluencer, and I'm out this motherfucker. Mm -hmm.